This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. And hello, Hearts of Oak. Thank you once again for joining us. I guess that has been with us before, and that is Robert Spencer. Robert, thank you once again for your time today. Good to see you, Peter. Thank you for having me on again. Great to have you on. And we're going to look at uh, a book that I have more or less finished, about two chapters to finish, and that is Did Muhammad Exist? An Inquiry into Islam's Obscure Origins. That is a picture there, and you can get it anywhere. I personally read it on Kindle as an ebook. And one of the first books I read on Islam was The Truth About Muhammad, which is certainly an older book, um, but we are looking at historical issues. And that was certainly part of my education and the foundation of my journey and understanding into the dark world of Islam. So it is wonderful to have uh, you on. You can follow Robert Spencer at JihadWatchRS on Getter, on Twitter, and of course, JihadWatch.org. And Robert is the um, is the uh, founder of JihadWatch. You can sign up to the emails. I get them regularly. It will inform you what is happening in the Islamic world and looking at Islam itself. Um, there are fascinating chapters in this book. And I think when the foreword was for this new edition was by Jay Smith, who, good friend, been on many times I've known for 15 years. And just let me just read a few lines of what he said. In 1995, Cambridge University, I did a debate with Dr. Jamal Badawi, considered at the time one of the leading apologists for Islam in the English-speaking world. And then he goes on and says that there was a lack of compelling evidence uh, understanding traditional sources, and he said that he Jay came away and saying he had nothing until until Robert Spencer published his second major book on Muhammad, entitled "Did Muhammad Exist?" One of the first books to publicly question the very existence of the man almost two billion Muslims look to. That's um, quite a claim, and there is little written about this, and that is a. I guess, a a weighty commendation from Jay on your shoulders. Well, I'm very grateful to him for it, certainly. And uh, indeed, depend on his work for some of the things that are in the book. Uh, it's uh, something that he, of course, has been a pioneering scholar in uh, trying to determine what exactly happened and to reconstruct the origins of Islam. One thing that I think that it's clear that we do know is that it didn't happen the way the canonical Islamic texts say that it happened. Mm. When I looked through, actually, in the author's preface, you caught the return of did Muhammad exist, Muhammad strikes back. And I, I caught that as you relishing the task at hand. And even, I guess, having some fun in, in rewriting the history. Well, you know, uh, (laughs) Obviously, I enjoy writing, but this was one of the most fun books to research and to write because it's a fascinating topic. I don't know how anybody could see, look into this and think that it's dull. It's extraordinary uh, that you have this, as you noted, this pivotal religious figure who has transformed human history and changed its direction in innumerable ways. And yet when you look into the earliest sources available for what he said and did, the more you look, the less you see. And it looks like there was nobody there. It's astonishing, really. And uh, I, I did enjoy a great deal putting this book together. You obviously wrote the original one and then... Um with a lot of new material coming out, there was obviously um, a desire and need for an updated edition. Um, and I think there you talked about about 25% extra material in this updated edition. Yeah. Uh, well, what happened was this guy wrote me 
um, there was a discovery of a Quran manuscript that was dated very early. And so people were saying, this could be a Quran manuscript that Muhammad himself possessed. <laughs> and there was great excitement over it. And this was after the book came out, the, the first edition in uh, 2012. I think this was 2014 or 15. So some guy wrote me, a Muslim, furious and said, now you're going to have to retract your entire book, Did Muhammad Exist? Because now we have proof that the Quran is very early and that this may have been the one that Muhammad possessed. So everything you said is false. Well, the funny thing is that not only did the new discovery not make me want to retract the book, but it made me want to revise and expand it because the stories that said this could be the Quran that Muhammad himself possessed were depending upon carbon dating of the manuscript that showed that it dated from about 570 to 645. Now, Muhammad is supposed to have gotten his first revelation in 610 and died in 632. So the Quran is supposed to be completed by 632. Now, if this manuscript could possibly be dated from 575 to 610, then it ain't the Quran at all. It's a source. uh, It's, it may be a source that, was used to put the Quran together because we certainly can distinct can determine that the Quran was put together from pre-existing material, but it's not the Quran itself. And so that possibility made me think, well, this really needs to be in the book. And there were, as you noted, a great many other things that were uh, discovered or came to light in the period after the first edition came out. So I thought it was time to spruce it up and uh, grateful that I got the opportunity. Wow. When they, when they claim that the Quran they found was written was before the Quran, uh, that yeah. I could imagine falling over themselves. But um, can you just remind us what the traditional narrative is on the Quran that's generally accepted without thinking worldwide? Oh, sure. Uh, like I said, Muhammad is supposed to have gotten the first revelation of the Quran, generally agreed, but not universally, to be what is now Surah 96, chapter 96 of the Quran, in the year 610. And then for the next 23 years to 632, when he died, he received periodical revelations through the angel Gabriel from Allah of what the Quran said. That's the idea. And so uh, in, then, in 653, when people who had parts of the Quran memorized were dying off or were being killed in various battles, the Caliph Uthman decided that in order to preserve the whole thing and keep it going, they had to have the Quran written down. So he got everybody together who had parts of it co- uh, memorized, codified the text, burned variants, which were why there were variants was unexplained and distributed copies of the finalized Quran to all the Islamic provinces of his empire. So the story goes that by 653, we had the Quran as it stands today. And so the Quran that people read and recite today is supposedly Uthman's Quran from 653 which is supposedly a faithful representation of the various revelations Muhammad received from 610 to 632. But there's so many holes in that narrative that it can't be credited to the slightest degree. Mm. Um, In chapter one, you start off, you acknowledge dozens of academics um, who over maybe the last 150 years, maybe a start then, um, have critiqued Islam through their research and findings. Um, but you also make the statement that Islam is unique in not having undergone searching historical criticism on any significant scale. Um, but there was some which was written, obviously not accepted, and you were able to look through those sources, those 
publications and begin to draw from that. Yeah. See, these guys are renegades, generally. The people who have conducted this research are, many of them are not in colleges or universities, mm. are not researchers in the academic establishment. Some of them are, uh, but generally the ones who are tend to be more, uh, to, tend to want to adhere more to the traditional narrative. Yeah. Or even most of the academics either just take for granted that narrative or they work to shore it up against the challenges from these renegades. Like, see, by comparison, when I was in graduate school, I took courses on the New Testament and they were all about how various parts of it were not historically accurate. And for various reasons, historians had decided that this statement or this passage was written later and that uh, these things could not be attributed to their uh, traditional authors and so on. Uh, and that was taken for granted. That was a... Uh, a line of historical inquiry that had gone on for a couple hundred years before I got to graduate school. And these guys were just treading in well-trod pathways. But I don't think there's a course. I don't think there was a course in the eighties when I was in school or now or any time in between. Now, maybe some of your uh, viewers can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe there is one somewhere, but I don't think there's a course in any college or university in Britain or in the United States or anywhere in the Western world that is skeptical of the canonical story of Muhammad and teaches students some of the difficulties with that canonical story and offers possibilities as to what might really have happened. I don't think there's any such course, whereas there are just dozens, if not hundreds, of courses about the historicity of the canonical texts of Judaism and Christianity. And I guess part of that maybe is because of a fear that Islam deals with those who disagree in a violent manner. Uh, and I get many people publish results under pseudonyms, I guess. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, there was a professor, Suleiman Bashir, who was actually in uh, a university in the West Bank, I believe. And he actually was taking some of the same... Uh, undertaking some of the same investigations that I did in Did Muhammad Exist and taught that there was historical trouble with the canonical story to his students, whereupon they seized him and threw him out the window of the classroom. So, you know, that, that, that kind of thing can discourage uh, historical inquiry, and there's no doubt that people are afraid. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar who's extremely skeptical of the canonical story in the New Testament and has written a number of books about it. And one of the books that he wrote uh, that I found out about after I wrote Did Muhammad Exist is a perfect companion book called Did Jesus Exist? And somebody asked Ehrman, are you going to undertake a similar exploration of Islam? And he said, no, I value my life. Yeah. Just like that. And there's no doubt, you know, I, I've been getting so many death threats lately and uh, there's been a considerable increase. I think it's because I've published a still newer book just in the last few months, The Critical Quran, that's a new translation and commentary of the, on the Quran. And uh, I don't like that. But, you know, um, if I get killed, it'll just be another discouragement for people. And they'll say, you know, people just can't go into mm. this field or look into these things. But at the same time, I don't believe in bowing down to violent intimidation. That doesn't mean I'm not going to get killed. Maybe they will get me. I don't really care. The fact is I was going to die anyway. And uh, the, I'm, I'm just never going to say I'm not going to explore these issues because they might get mad. A lot of murderous scoundrels and savages might get mad. Sorry, I don't care. <laughs> uh, chapter two. Uh, is titled The Man Who Wasn't There. And let me just give a few lines, uh, one of your statements. The name Muhammad actually appears in the Quran only four times. And in three of those instances, it can be used as a title, the praised one or chosen one. 
by contrast, Moses mentioned by name 136 times, Abraham 79, and you go on and on. It it seems so. Muhammad isn't really a key figure. It, it's quite strange. How is that explained? Well, the 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 standard Islamic understanding is that Muhammad is actually addressed and spoken to hundreds of times in the Quran. And uh, there's no doubt that somebody is. And oftentimes that person is identified as the messenger or the prophet. And everyone assumes you can even get a lot of translations. This is actually one of the reasons why I did a new translation of the Quran. Hmm. Because most of the English translations will actually say, uh, whoever's speaking in the Quran, it's usually un- understood as being Allah, that Allah speaks the whole thing. There's some passages where Allah is dis- is spoken about in the third person, and so that's problematic. But leaving that aside for a moment, Allah is the speaker of the whole Quran, and many times he's dictating. He says, say this, say, O messenger, to the unbelievers. And in numerous English translations of the Quran, it'll say, say, O messenger, and then in parentheses, Muhammad. So you're reading along, you don't know. And when I first read the Quran way back in those days in graduate school in the 80s, I didn't know that all those parenthetical Muhammads, it ain't necessarily the man who's actually being addressed. That's what Islamic tradition assumes, that the Quran is speaking to Muhammad all over the place. But there's no necessary connection between the messenger who is addressed in the Quran and the figure of Muhammad, since the Quran we start to see in the 700s, and we don't get the canonical story of Muhammad until the 800s. So it may be that there was another messenger altogether or a number of other messengers, and their stories were combined to create the story of Muhammad. Okay, wow. Another name you mentioned, you mentioned Allah, um, supposedly the the god of Islam. But again, it's quite uh, generic. It just is a god, and I I don't think uh, many non-Muslims really grasp that, that it's not talking about the, it, it, it's not that specific. It's just a generic a God, something up there. That's also quite strange. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the God. Al is the, yeah. you know, okay. like uh, okay. just the definite article. And then uh, Elah is a generic God and Allah is the God. So you have the God speaking all the way through. Uh, and the Quran in 2946, chapter 29, verse 46, says our Allah and your Allah are the same to the people of the book. So the claim is in Islam that this is the God of the Jews and Christians. And any differences between the uh, the, the teachings of Judaism and Christianity and Islam are attributed to the Jews and Christians actually daring to tamper with their scriptures to change their teachings uh, so that Islam that comes last is supposed to be the actual corrective and the perfect version. And I should also note, since I was saying that uh, you have only Muhammad in the 800s, Muhammad is supposed to have lived in the 600s, but in the 600s, in any of the contemporary literature, we don't find him. There are a couple of mentions of Muhammad, and none of them correspond to the canonical Islamic story about the prophet. So, once again, he's the man who wasn't there. Well, that yeah, you go into in that chapter and you talk about the documents written, uh, the the massive historical documents about what happens at that time in that place in Arabia, and Muhammad seems to be completely uh, not there. And you mention artifacts like coins again. And there's nothing there. So it seems there's nothing that points to his existence outside some writings, but nothing actually outside Islamic texts. Yeah. Well, there are non-Islamic texts, to be sure, to be absolutely fair. There are a couple of non-Islamic texts from date from the 630s. Muhammad is supposed to have died in 632. And from the later 630s and the early 640s, there are a couple of documents that are not Muslim that mention Muhammad. However, 
they're weird. One of them <laughs> says that he is leading the Arab armies that are invading Syria. The invasion of Syria started in 634, two years after he's supposed to have died. So he was not leading the invading armies if the canonical Islamic texts are right. If this other text is right and he's leading the invading armies, then the canonical Islamic texts are wrong. But you can't have both. So you can't just say, oh, see, this is an early mention of Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, because it doesn't correspond to the stories of Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. It also says that he's preaching the coming Messiah. That's not a central teaching of Islam, that there's going to be a coming Messiah. Jesus is identified as the Messiah in the Quran, al-Masih, but that's more of a name in the Quran than a title. And it's never given any, any significance other than the significance you would give to a name. So the idea that this is... Muhammad comes fighting against the Syrians and preaching the coming Messiah. That ain't the prophet of Islam. And so this is a problem with all of the early mentions of him, of which there are only a handful. None of them correspond to the canonical Islamic story. Now, when you talk about the canonical Islamic story, um, I mean, he has his own biography, the Sirah. Um, surely, where did that come from? Tell us about that. Surely, if he has his biography, he must be there. I'm sorry, he has. He has he, his own biography in the Sirah. Talks about the biography of the Prophet of Islam. Um, so surely yes, that's proof. But the Sirah comes later. See, you got the Sirah in um, the 750s, 760s. Ibn Ishaq writes the Sirat Rasulullah, the biography of the prophet of the messenger of Allah. But even then we don't have it because it only exists in a massive copy that was made by Ibn Hisham. Ibn Hisham's writing in the 830s. And in the 830s, he takes Ibn Ishaq and plunks down a large part of it in his biography of Muhammad. So we don't have any biography of Muhammad, the Sirah, until 200 years after he's supposed to have died. So this would be like a biography of uh, George Washington only now being, only now appearing. Or Thomas Jefferson, that's closer because he died in 1826. So it's 2022. Imagine if only now for the first time, we get a biography of Thomas Jefferson, and there's some legends about him before, but none of them correspond to what is written about what he said and did in this biography. There would be massive questions about the historical reliability of the biography, and so there also should be about the Sira. Um, in Chapter 4, it's Inventing Muhammad. I thought that was an interesting title. And you'd, underneath you'd said, if Muhammad did not exist, it was necessary to invent him. Tell us more about your thoughts behind kind of that those phrases. Well, you know, Muhammad in the Prophet of Islam does exist in the sense of there's all this literature about him and there are all these people who believe in him. And so if the book is correct, and if I'm correct in saying that he's more myth and legend than fact, then where did these stories come from and why? And that has to be explained. And so the primary explanation that I think makes the most sense is this. In the days that the Arabs started to invade all those territories, the Middle East and North Africa and all the rest, Persia and India, in the 600s, there were two great powers in the world, the Roman Empire or Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire. Hmm. The Roman Empire and the Persian Empire were both unified by religion, not by a constitution or by a parliament or by ethnic identity for that matter, uh, none of the things that are generally considered to unify a nation state were what unified those states. What unified those states was a common religion. The Roman or Byzantine Empire was Christian and the Persian Empire was Zoroastrian. 
And so the Arabs, at a ver- at very great speed, amassed a huge empire. And then, because this was not the age of parliaments and such and constitutions, they didn't think, oh, we need to now have a constitutional convention and formulate our basic law. They thought, we need to have a religion that will unify our empire, like the other empires are unified by religion. And they cast about for various materials and used various materials from Judaism and from Christianity and from Zoroastrianism and created Islam. And they made it martial, warlike, aggressive, violent, and expansionist because they were aggressive, warlike, violent, aggressive, uh, uh, violent, and expansionist. They were warriors. And so they wanted a religion that would sanctify being a warrior and encourage people to be warriors so that their empire would grow and expand. And it worked great. So part of it is, I guess, gives legitimacy to uh, that expansionism and they can do it under something. They can point, well, this is the reason why we're doing it. This gives us the authority, therefore uh, we can do it. So it kind of covers themselves as they continue to use violence and expand. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That they uh, can say we're following a divine command and that impresses people. And they can also offer this foolproof win-win situation to the warriors that created an awesome fighting force that swept over half of the known world at that time. And that was that if they lose, if they're killed, they go to paradise. And in paradise, they're rewarded with these heavenly virgins that are described in the Quran. If they win, they can seize the property and the women of the warriors they've killed. So either way, they end up with a situation that enhances their uh, standing in terms of material goods and physical pleasures. And they think of paradise and the heavenly realms after death as a physical place. And so... They think they will fight uh, stoutly and courageously in order to get there. And if they win, they enjoy it all on earth. If they lose, they enjoy it all on paradise, in paradise. So it is a win-win, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, in chap- chapter six, you titled The Absence of Arabia, and later on you talk about the absence of Mecca. Um uh, two lines from it, just as Arab identity is central to Islam, Mecca, the holy city in Islam, is central to its Arab identity. Um, yet for all its centrality to Islam, Mecca is mentioned by name only once in the Quran. Tell us about that when you talk about the absence of Arabia and the absence of Mecca. Expand on that. Yeah, this is wild stuff. See, look, the if you read the Sira literature, which, remember, dates from the 800s, not the 600s, in the, in the Sierra literature, Mecca is a thriving center of trade and pilgrimage. And the Arabs from all over the Arabian Peninsula come there regularly to worship at the Kaaba, which has 360 idols in it, in a little cube-shaped building that's still there. And that's all of the idols that the Arab, various Arab tribes worship. And so the Arab tribes all go to Mecca at various times. And also, it's a center for trade. And people come from Syria and elsewhere, and they trade in Mecca. So Muhammad's wife, first wife, Khadija, is a wealthy merchant, hmm. a pioneering, liberated feminist. And she uh, has trade works, uh, trading with people in Syria. And Muhammad ends up working for her and ends up marrying her. And people come from Syria in the stories and they identify Muhammad as the future prophet and so on. And the Quraysh, the tribe of Arabs in Mecca, they are depicted in the Syria literature as disliking Muhammad's claim to be a prophet because they thought if he's preaching just one God, then all these gods in the Kaaba are false. And the pilgrimage will cease and we'll lose money 
because, you know, people would come and spend money in Mecca when they came for pilgrimages. Now, of course, Muhammad squared that circle by making the pilgrimage part of Islam, but that's later on. They initially resist him, and part of it is because they're afraid he's going to hurt their business. And they're afraid that if he is preaching this uncompromising monotheism and demanding that everybody convert, that the tradesmen who come from Syria will not want to come because they will feel like they have to convert if they go there and it gets to be a very uh, difficult situation uh, far beyond just simply doing business. And so they, they opposed him for self-serving economic reasons, you see. They didn't want to obey God because it would hurt their bottom line. Mm. That's the story. So it depend, the whole story depends on Mecca being a center for trade and pilgrimage. Now, go to the contemporary literature, and there's no Mecca. It's not mentioned. It's not on the maps. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's an insignificant little town. It's not a center for trade and pilgrimage. And we know this also because the merchants of the day kept logbooks, just like they do today. And they would log in what they sold and where. And they would do this because obviously they would want to go back and hit the places where they sold stuff and, 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 and continue to sell material where it was popular. And, there's, and we have a lot of those logbooks from the 6th century. Nobody goes to Mecca. If you look at a map and you think about the Spice Road from Europe to India and back. People traveled from Europe down through Constantinople to Syria and then across into Iran and into India. Now, that's pretty much a a sort of a line like this, uh, a southeast line. You're traveling southeast. If you stop to go to Mecca, to southwestern Arabia, it's no longer a neat southeast line. Instead, you're going down into Arabia across trackless desert waste and then back up and across. They didn't do that. For one thing, for another thing, you know, crossing into down into Mecca was not so easy then as it is now. I mean, of course, now you can't go at all unless you're Muslim. But if you're a Muslim, you can just drive in. But in those days, if you're in Damascus and you want to go to Mecca, you got to cross, like I said, trackless desert waste. There's no rest stop. There's no uh, McDonald's. You could die of thirst out there. There's nothing there. And it just wasn't done. Obviously, it wasn't done from the records that are extant. So... The fact that Mecca is not mentioned, that Mecca is not traveled to, it calls into question the whole basis of the Syria literature, that Muhammad was opposed because of the economic harm he threatened to do to the Quraysh. Well, maybe not. Wow. And, of course, you'd expect Mecca to be the if it was so big, if Islam was so powerful, it was the, I guess, occupying force of the time, different than, uh, I guess, in Jesus' time, where Christianity was not an occupying force, it was a a marginalized sect. Uh, Quite different here for Islam. So you think if it's the dominant force, then everything will be perfectly preserved. Yeah, exactly. That uh, they would keep the whatever records there were. And obviously, there were efforts to do that. Like, People have said, how can you say that Muhammad didn't exist? His tomb is in Mecca. Well, great. But who's in it? You know, have you checked the DNA? And even if you did, what are you going to check it against? His dental records? I mean, the the tomb, there's no mention of a tomb of Muhammad until the ninth century, just like there's no mention of Muhammad or no significant mention of Muhammad as prophet of Islam until the ninth century. And so it's then that the the myth starts to be constructed and the tomb is part of it. But it's not as if there's 
any antecedent or contemporary evidence of his existence. And this is the difficulty. You mentioned about the Kaaba, that huge box we see when Muslims go to that pilgrimage every year. Uh, so that box has been sitting in that place for the last 1,300 years and is full of 360 idols that they all go and uh, kind of worship at. That's quite well, it's strange. Not them now. It's, it's not full of them now. Muhammad is uh, said in the Syria literature that he it's said that he cleared them all out except one an icon of Jesus and Mary but even that's not in there now there are vi- you can go on youtube and find video of the inside of the kaaba uh privileged people are allowed to go in sometimes and there's no icon of Jesus and Mary there's uh it's really just basically an empty room um and so whether muhammad cleared it out or somebody else did it's cleared but it does seem to have been pre-Islamic, and there were also other Kaabas that are noted in some of the contemporary literature in other cities. This was some kind of a building that people would construct that they would uh, then have worship services and make pilgrimages to. And so it's not even clear that uh, the Kaaba was originally in Mecca. See, there are other aspects for this as well, that... Arabic, like all other languages, or most other languages, has dialects. Uh, I say most because I've, I've heard that Russian doesn't have dialects. I don't know if this is true. Maybe uh, some of your listeners can uh, tell me if they're Russian dialects. But I was told that Russian has a magnificent unity wherever it's spoken. I don't know. But in any case, most languages have dialects. Certainly in the United States, um, people who are from Mississippi speak quite differently from people who are from Maine. And uh, while that's less true in the age of universal communication and television and so on, it's still true. And I know that in England, it's also true that people in Liverpool don't speak like people in London, or at least they didn't used to. Mm -hmm. And people of different social classes speak in different ways. And so in Arabic, there are also dialects. Now in, uh, Southwestern Arabia, where Mecca and Medina are, they speak one dialect, and the Quran's not written in that. It's written in the Northern Arabic dialect that is that is traced to the Nabataean areas around Petra in southern Jordan. And also it's been discovered, as I discuss in the book, that a lot of the earliest mosques yeah. face Petra and not Mecca. So... It may be that uh, the whole thing originated there. It's certainly true that and striking that the collectors of the Hadith, the people who put together the stories of Muhammad at the time that the Sira literature was being formulated, uh, they were working to collect these traditions of Muhammad in Iraq, in Syria, not Arabia. Why didn't they go to Arabia where he's supposed to be from? Wow. Maybe was. Well, you, you talk because we, we hear that they all supposedly face uh, face Mecca the most, but then they face Jerusalem before. This research I've read about over the last few years of it facing Petra or somewhere near Petra. And th- again, that doesn't make sense. And again, it takes away another foundational block from Islam. Yeah, because the Quran is very clear that originally the Muslims prayed facing Jerusalem. And then in chapter 2, Allah says he's going to give them a new Qibla. That's the direction for prayer. And it's to Mecca. And that's it. And yet, that's what happened. That uh, Dan Gibson, who uh, is a scholar of the Qibla, he did what nobody else did. He actually went to some of the earliest mosques. And... You know, if you go into a mosque to this day, uh, there's there's the mihrab that faces the Qibla. That is, there's a niche in the wall that um, shows you which way Mecca is, so you know which way to point for prayer, because you have to face Mecca to pray. In the earliest mosques, there was no mihrab. There was a uh, there was a wall. There was a sign on the wall or one of the walls was longer than the other 
and you would know that the longer wall is the one facing, well, facing where? He measured the, the Qiblas of the earliest mosques and found that quite a few of them face Petra in Jordan, not Mecca. And this is not, some people have said, this is just a question of uh, the imprecision of early geometry and geography that they didn't exactly know how to figure out how to get. And that's ridiculous because, you know, people did travel from one place to another in the ancient world. And I'm sure people got lost, but also people knew did get to where they were going. If you were in Rome and you wanted to go to Constantinople, you could get there. So my point is, if you were in some mosque in Iraq and you wanted to point to Mecca, people knew how to do it. But they didn't. They pointed to Petra. And if you look at Petra and Mecca on a map, there's no way that they could have been meaning to point to Mecca and they accidentally got it a little wrong. It's it's a, quite a different direction. Does that mean all the prayers of the Muslims in those mosques are negated? <laughs> <laughs> That's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Uh, it's just like uh, you can't eat during Ramadan between... Uh, sun up and sundown, and so if you're in Scandinavia, you're out of luck. You can't eat. Wow! At certain time, if Ramadan falls at the wrong time of year, and it's always sun up. Because Islam is based on rules, regulations. It's based on you must follow X, Y, Z. If you do X, Y, Z, A, then it's completely different. It's it's not a relational. It's you must simply follow the rules. And it's, yeah, most people, I guess, are not Muslims in the West, will have a difficult ability to understand that level of rules and regulations. Yes, absolutely. It's very legalistic. It's very uh, formalized. People don't realize that things we take for granted in the West, like your intentions, your goodwill, they may not be accepted at all. Uh, I remember a story about a guy who converted to Islam and then later he left Islam and he explained why he did so that one day after years of study and intense preparation, he became an Imam and an Imam is primarily just the person who leads the prayers Hmm. in the mosque. So he's leading the prayers in the mosque. He finishes, he's very proud. And somebody comes up to him and says, you have invalidated the prayer for all of us because you left a word out over here at this, in this passage. And the guy was dismayed. He thought, you know, doesn't Allah see my good intentions and good? No, you invalidated the prayer. You didn't say it right. And now we all have to go do it over. Wow. 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 Um, looking at the Quran itself, chapter eight is the unchanging Quran changes, um, the imperfect, perfect book. And you talk about uh, the perfect and miraculous book is decidedly imperfect, as some Muslims have begun to note. And then you talk about a Saudi journalist in 2020 observing about two and a half thousand mistakes. Um, kind of explain that of how the Quran supposedly has to be 100% perfect. Well, the Quran is supposed to be the perfect book that has existed forever with a law in paradise called the Umm al-Kitab, the mother of the book. And the mother of the book is always there with a law. And it was the mother of the book, this is according to the Quran, that was delivered piece by piece to Muhammad through Gabriel. And that's the Quran. So the Quran is not just an average book. It's not even like the Bible. The Bible, you open up the Bible, you open up the New Testament, and it says the gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark. So in other words, the New Testament is acknowledging that there's a human element in this. And St. Paul, in one of his letters, says, uh, I didn't come to baptize, I came to preach the gospel Oh, wait, I did baptize so-and-so. Oh, yeah, and I baptized somebody else too. But still, I, my point is I didn't come to baptize. Now, it's not that God is forgetting who Paul baptized. 
It's that Paul is writing out of his human understanding. And the idea in Christianity is that he the 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 uh, lessons, the teachings that he is conveying are what are divinely inspired, but through his human intellect. Now, there's no concept of that in Islam. In Islam, the whole Quran is dictated by Allah, and it's this perfect book. So there's no human element whatsoever, and no human intellect remembering something and forgetting something. Nothing of that. So this perfect book, the problem is it contains all kinds of curious things like grammatical errors in Arabic and infelicities in Arabic. One of my favorite ones, uh, I don't know if I could find it right offhand, but um, the rhyme scheme in Arabic is very important in the Quran. And in one passage, it says, peace be upon Elias, that is Elijah, but in the Greek form, Elias. And instead of saying Elias, though, in order to continue with the rhyme scheme in Arabic, it has to say it in the plural. So in other words, it's saying is essentially, peace be upon Elias's. And uh, it's just a clumsy thing to say because they have to keep it rhyming. And Islamic apologists explain that by saying, well, you see, they, it means Eli- Elias's family, like the Joneses, you know, yeah. the Mechelvenas. Uh, but this is obviously a council of despair hmm. formulated in order to explain this thing. And there are also, of course, variants that there are manuscripts that say one thing, and other manuscripts that say something different. Now, even up to quite recently, Islamic apologists denied that that was even possible. And they have said that there were no variants in any manuscript. You can find Yasser Qadi, a very uh, prominent Islamic scholar in the United States, you can find him readily on video uh, saying, every last manuscript of the Quran is exactly like every other because Allah miraculously preserved them from error. Now, in the critical Quran, I've got numerous variants marked at various passages because there are lots of them. I don't even have all of them in there. And even Yasser Qadi and others have had to acknowledge that the variants exist. And now they say, well, you see, Allah protected the Quran in various different forms, which is yet another council of despair. There's something, you know, you're, they're making that up in order to cover for the problem. Uh Either the Quran is the perfect book that existed forever in paradise with Allah, or or it isn't. But the idea that it has all these different versions and they're all the perfect book, well, it's getting silly now. Wow. Um, Robert, to finish off, this is, I I think it's maybe the, is it the only book you've done an updated version? You've written many books, but is this the only one you've done a revised edition on? Yeah, that's right. There are some others I'd love to do that with. Uh, Maybe that'll be possible in the future. Uh, You mentioned the truth about Muhammad. The truth about Muhammad is another thing where people say, how could you have written the truth about Muhammad and then written, did Muhammad exist? Why? You've contradicted all of your work. And that's, you know, once again, this is just silliness because the truth about Muhammad is a biography of Muhammad based on the Islamic texts. And then did Muhammad exist as an evaluation of whether those Islamic texts are historically reliable. Both are important because we have to know what the texts say since Muslims believe in them and act upon them. But that doesn't mean they're historically accurate. I'd love to do an update of that uh, or a revision of that, I should say. It's not that Muhammad's done anything new, but there's so much more. And the publisher at that time... um, they didn't want the book to be very long, so I had to leave out a lot of stuff. And I don't know if that'll ever be possible, but that's one I would love to revise. And the history of jihad that I wrote in 2018, it is the most comprehensive history of jihad that's available in English, uh, but there's always more. And so maybe someday, but I don't know that either of those will happen. Right now I'm working on a history of the Byzantine Empire, which is sort of the, uh, the same problem from the opposite angle. Okay. And just finally, when uh, you've finished this, you've closed it, kind of as you look back, what was there, 
what was the thing that jumped out at you most? Or, I mean, uh, part of this, you've gathered a lot of what's been happening and made it known to the public. Uh, was there something that kind of impressed you most or stuck with you? Uh, you know, was there anything that specific that you kind of sit back and are pleased that you put that piece of information out? Yeah, I, I think mainly that there's no contemporary mention of the Prophet of Islam. That is, in the 600s when he's supposed to have lived, and in the 60 years after that, we have no inkling that the Prophet of Islam existed. No mention. And all kinds of literature about the Arab conquests, and they never get around to saying, you know, we're doing this because we have this new prophet, a new religion, and in our new holy book it says to fight the unbelievers. Nothing like that. And yet you have to think that if all that Islamic tradition is authentic, then it existed at that time. People had it, and yet they never mention it. And I think that's the foremost problem with the historicity of Muhammad, and that I've brought that out into the open. Yeah. Thank you. Robert Spencer, thank you so much for your time once again. Fascinating subject. And it's, uh, as you, we talk about Islam in, in general with current affairs, but it's important to go back to the historicity of it and understand that. So thank you for coming along today. Thank you. Always good to talk to you. And just our, as we finish off to our viewers, of course, make sure if you're on Getter, follow Robert at Jihad Watch RS, Robert Spencer on Getter, on Twitter, and of course, go to jihadwatch.org. You can sign up to emails. You can get a lot of information there. Please don't go and make use of it. And the link to the what we've covered and some of the other books will be in the description. So feel free to click on that and get a copy of your own. So on that, I wish our viewers a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you for our next interview very soon. So thank you and goodbye. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.